How much does he know about the shipment? Enough to know you killed someone for it. You mean Dawes? <laughs> well, he wasn't the first, and he won't be the last, Mr. Tintin. On today's episode of Radio Tintin, he swears he drinks, and he's one of the most enduring characters in children's literature. The captain joins the crew in Radio Tintin, The Crab with the Golden Claws. The word Caraboujan scrawled on a label torn from a tin of crab meat. It's enough to pique Tintin's curiosity, and when he discovers that Caraboujan is the name of a cargo ship, he naturally decides to investigate, discovering that the ship is smuggling opium contained in, you guessed it, tins of crab meat. Captured and held in the hold as the Caraboujan set sails, Tintin escapes and comes across the ship's captain, the miserable and alcoholic Captain Haddock, who is being kept completely drunk by the treacherous first mate, Mr. Allen, totally unaware of what his ship is being used for. Tintin and Haddock flee the Caraboujan and commandeer a plane, which, due to the captain's drunken antics, crashes in the middle of the Sahara Desert. They are fortunately rescued by the French Foreign Legion and make their way to the Moroccan port city of Baguere, still on the trail of the Caraboujan, where Haddock is captured once more while Tintin, meeting up with detectives Thompson and Thompson, discovers that the crab tins are supplied by a prominent merchant within the city. Tintin uncovers the drug ring's underground hideout, rescues the captain and alerts the authorities, though Mr. Allen gets away in a speedboat. Tintin, not yet realising that Mr. Allen is a recurring villain in the series, takes Chase in a boat of his own and brings him back to justice. The story ends with Tintin publicly proclaimed a hero, no surprises there, while Haddock takes to the radio to extol the virtues of his newfound sobriety, which, if you're familiar with the series, you'll know lasts for a total of about 10 minutes. The Crab with the Golden Claws was serialised in Belgian newspaper Le Soir from October 17, 1940 to October 18, 1941, making it the first Tintin album not to be serialised in Le Petit Vingtième, the children's supplement to Le Vetième Cicle, after Tintin's original home was closed by the occupying German authorities following their invasion of Belgium. As was explored in the previous episode of Radio Tintin, Urge was midway through a story titled Land of Black Gold when the publication was shuttered. The story, featuring Tintin in British Palestine, caught between warring factions of Jews and Arabs, dealt far too heavily in real-world geopolitics to be revived in the censorious environment of occupied Belgium. Having made the controversial decision to continue publishing Tintin in what was dubbed a stolen newspaper, the term given to a native publication such as Le Soir that had been co-opted to fit German propaganda purposes to varying degrees of vehemence, Urge understood that any story he produced would now be scrutinised by the censors, and he had no desire to rock the boat. The nation's crisis had become his opportunity. Le Soir, stolen or not, had a readership that dwarfed that of Le Vetium Cicle, and Urge had a golden opportunity to dramatically expand Tintin's readership providing he kept his head down. Black Gold was thus a non-starter. Instead, Urge's new story would centre on the politically neutral region of French North Africa. 
Rather than industrial sabotage, Tintin would return to face a universal evil last explored by Urge in his story Cigars of the Pharaohs and the Blue Lotus, and once more work to battle a ring of international drug smugglers. Tintin's adventures had always been shaped by contemporary political ideas. His debut adventure had, of course, been formulated as a means to attack European communism, and it's likely Urge saw these current restrictions as little different. Tintin and Snowy are back, proclaimed the cover of the first issue of Le Soir Genus, depicting the smiling characters walking purposefully along the road. The message was clear. While he believed it was only temporary, Urge had accepted the new status quo, and so too had his greatest creation. On top of Tintin's latest adventure, Urge was tasked with organising and editing the children's supplement in which it would appear. If this sounds exactly like his role in the early days of Le Petit Vintième, that's because Le Soir's editor Raymond de Becker had specifically eyed Urge to replicate the formula with Le Soir Genus. Assisting him in this would be his old school friend and former colleague at Le Petit, Paul Jamin, and a new collaborator by the name of Jacques van Melkebecker, with whom Urge would share a long professional partnership, even co-authoring two Tintin stage plays in 1941 and 42. The perceived authenticity of the stolen newspapers like Le Soir is debatable. On one hand, they were, after all, skewed to support the Nazi regime. On the other hand, everybody who read it knew as much, meaning there was still scope for interesting content, such as Tintin, if one was able to look through the propaganda. This is no doubt how Urge justified his work. It became considerably harder during the course of the war, when paper shortages forced away the supplement section entirely and moved Tintin's panels into the fold of the newspaper itself, forced into even closer proximity with words of praise for Europe's Nazi-dominated New Order. Perhaps today it seems like a trite issue, but it carried real consequences. After Belgium's liberation, all of the personnel associated with the publication of stolen newspapers faced charges of collaboration by a furious Belgian public. In 1946, both Raymond de Becker and Paul Germain were sentenced to death, while Van Melkebecker was imprisoned. While these sentences were eventually commuted, the careers of all men were permanently checked, and in some cases, halted entirely and it's arguably only the sheer popularity of Tintin that enabled Urge to continue working after his involvement with Le Soir. But all of that is for a future episode. If The Crab with the Golden Claws was a story born from sacrifice and compromise, does it show in the handsomely printed editions available today? The story begins as innocuously as possible, with Snowy, that incorrigible rapscallion, digging through rubbish on the street. Benoit Peters notes the metaphorical aspects of such an opening. Just as Tintin's grand adventure begins in the garbage, Urge was beginning anew, creating wonderful things in a newspaper tarnished by the Nazis. Creatively, it shows a profound confidence in Urge's readership. As late as 1938, Tintin's adventures began with a bullet to the chest in the opening page. Clearly, Urge no longer felt the need to hook the reader with such mystery from the outset, instead letting the drama build slowly. The slow opening once more gives an insight into the civilian Tintin, who no longer just plays the avenging superhero, appearing by train in the story's opening panel with the express purpose of stopping the baddies. He almost seems like the everyman here, 
albeit an everyman who maintains a well-furnished apartment despite never being shown doing any work, one who stumbles into adventures rather than charging headlong at them. The Thompsons are not dropped into the story in the midst of a mystery, but are instead first depicted enjoying an afternoon beer, no judgement for me, while working to solve a case unrelated to the overall plot. Auger is domesticating Tintin, in preparation for the family of characters being built around him. This slow pacing, however, does not last throughout the course of The Crab with the Golden Claws. By 1940, the improvisation that had marked Tintin's earliest adventures had been severely limited. Wartime paper shortages would do away with it altogether. Tintin's move from a weekly supplement to a daily strip meant that Urge no longer had the luxury of a double-page spread to play with. The reader's attention had to be held through a daily series of three or four panels, while still adhering to an overarching plot. The change in pacing is noticeable. For example, the entirety of pages 6 and 7 from early in the album are dedicated entirely to Tintin looking for a magnifying glass. Compare this to pages 54 and 55, where Tintin finds time to rescue Haddock, get shot at, get trapped in a cellar, and get drunk in the same amount of space. Now, neither of these choices of pacing are necessarily wrong, but the abrupt change has led scholars such as Jean-Marc and Randy Lofficer to consider the third act somewhat rushed. In terms of overall story, The Crab with the Golden Claws is absolutely fine. It's good. Very good, even. In the scheme of the whole series, it's a perfectly adequate adventure. But as such, it doesn't really stand out too much in of itself, particularly after the truly unique settings and mysteries present in the previous two adventures, The Black Island and King Otakar's Scepter. The idea of smuggling narcotics via shipments of innocuous consumer products, tins of meat this time, was already explored in 1934's Cigars of the Pharaohs, and it's impossible to ignore how many of the same story beats are hit upon once more in The Crab with the Golden Claws. Everything from Tintin snooping through a cargo ship and being detained, wandering through the desert, to stumbling upon the secret entrance to the underground headquarters of the smuggling ring, many parts of Claws feel like familiar ground. While from a story standpoint you'd have to conclude the later adventure is superior, with the story told more succinctly and unfolding more naturally, the earlier Cigars does have some very charming scenes and sequences, reminiscent of a more improvisational author. While the main villain in Claws, the wealthy trader Omar Ben Salad, does cut an enjoyable figure with his rotund physique and round spectacles, he is only named in the third act, in contrast to the careful hints dropped by Urge in Cigars that the erstwhile ally Rostopopoulos has actually been the nemesis all along. It's an interesting instance of greater foreshadowing appearing in Urge's less meticulous phase. The reader is compensated, at least, in the form of the devious Mr. Allen, first mate of the Caribujan, who should really claim main antagonist status in Claws. Now, in a retroactive piece of world-building, he would be included in revised editions of Cigars of the Pharaohs, but this marks his true debut, and he's wonderful. A sneering thug like so many of Urge's earlier villains, but more formidable than hapless, and one who does seem to quietly enjoy doing what he does. Urge's inclusion of a brave Japanese policeman who is similarly kidnapped while on the trail of the same smugglers should be read less as Urge trying to appease the censors with a positive depiction of the Nazis' Japanese allies, and more of him personally attempting to make up for the depiction of the Japanese in The Blue Lotus, shown there to be violent bullies and, as it would happen, drug smugglers. 
Similarly, the positive depiction of the forces in North Africa, implicitly French, is less likely a tacit political endorsement of the French, and more likely a product of Hergé having read the French adventure novel, The White Squadron, which featured the same setting in 1936. Michael Farr notes comparisons between the two stories. If the story is adequate, the artwork is, unfortunately, not. The Crab with the Golden Claws must be considered one of the blandest Tintin stories to look at, with many panels depicting Hergé's wonderful characters moving or speaking against a monochromatic background, a sin not committed since 1937's The Broken Ear, which was colorized in the same period. Again, context is key. The changes to the serialization effectively meant that Hergé was producing 24 rather than 12 panels a week. But even so, it's a story that stands in marked contrast to those colorized in the post-war Studio Hergé era, and not for positive reasons. The exception is the brief and brilliant dream sequence in which Tintin envisions himself as a bottle of wine in the process of being violently uncorked. Such fantasy never really found a strong place in the series, but it's always a delight. While the shortcomings in the colouring are regrettable, to focus on the paint-by-numbers plot of The Crab with the Golden Claws would be a disservice to Hergé. Most likely, he understood that, given the censorship in place, he would not be able to push the envelopes in terms of story or setting, and would instead have to compensate with characterization. What Claws does undeniably better than Cigars of the Pharaohs, or indeed better than any previous story in the series, is establish the perfect counterpart to Tintin, one who worked so well it would hitherto be unthinkable to exclude him from any further adventure. The name Haddock is credited to Hergé's wife Germaine, who noted that the Haddock was a quote, sad English fish. It's an apt description of the captain in his first appearance. As Hergé would say many years later, I found an orphan by chance, born dead drunk through no wish of his own, in a cabin of the Caribujan. I ended up loving him, and Tintin re-educated him. That's a really nice way of saying that the captain we meet in The Crab with the Golden Claws is a mostly pitiful creature, so drunk that he can't even tell his ship is being used to smuggle drugs while his inebriation causes him to attack Tintin on several occasions, setting their boat on fire and crashing their plane. Tintin is forced to contend with his polar opposite, despairing where Tintin is determined, furious where Tintin is focused, and charging headlong into attack while Tintin waits and watches. The real story has less to do with Tintin foiling drug smugglers, but rather Haddock's journey to overcome his addiction, and Tintin being forced into cooperation with this destructive force. Citing Pierre Ajami, Peters concludes that Claus is indeed, quote, an epic of drunkenness, a truly alcoholic and stupefying adventure, end quote. This should not be confused, however, with Hergé moralizing on the issue of alcohol or drunkenness. While Haddock's alcoholism does indeed make him pitiful, it also makes him really funny, culminating with the captain taking to the national radio to resolutely warn against the dangers of alcohol, before fainting mid-broadcast from a drink of water. Indeed, Haddock's love of booze, particularly Loch Lamond whiskey, would endure as a pillar of his character, though he would never again relapse to the point of sabotaging Tintin's mission, with one notable exception in a memorable sequence from Explorers on the Moon. I suppose if you're going to fall off the wagon, it may as well be on a rocket ship. It seems that the thirsty trek through the desert mostly dried him out. 
Furthermore, for all the hindrance he proves to be in his first appearance, he is still recognisably Haddock. While sober, he displays all of the gruff, no-nonsense the reader would come to expect, complete with the iconic, creative curse words that would become another integral part of his personality. Urge credits the idea of using irreverent terms as insults to an argument he overheard in a grocer's in 1933, in which one angry man concluded the exchange by declaring his opponent a Four Powers Pact, the name given to a military treaty signed by the Western Powers in Japan earlier that year. An innocuous term, without any immediate negative connotation, but delivered with furious animosity, such would be the formula for all of the captain's wonderful curses in the years to come. Desert tramps, swines, jellyfish, troglodytes, rats, endoplasms, freshwater swab. It also provided the catalyst for a practical joke a few years later, in which Van Melkebecker pretended to be a furious father, writing to Urge after Haddock's use of a medical term for an instrument used in enemas. I was stunned to hear my son yesterday employ the term Klysopump, which I quickly found out you put into the mouth of Captain Haddock, wrote Van Melkebecker, no doubt while suppressing laughter at his desk. The father received an earnest response from a mortified Urge. I have just read your letter of yesterday. I am thoroughly confused to learn from you the use made of this utensil, and I freely admit that I have committed a blunder. Of course, the word will be struck out of Captain Haddock's vocabulary when he expresses himself in the Tintin books, thanks to your intervention, for which I am grateful. Beating my chest, I promise, sir, to do better next time. Now, it's possible to read that response as sarcastic in its sincerity, but I think that Urge was actually really that mortified that he had potentially unwillingly corrupted the minds of his young readership. He only cottoned on to the ruse when his response was returned to him unopened a few days later. Also, don't Google Klysopump. Some places do still seem to sell them, but um, I don't think they're being used for strictly medical purposes. Did Urge envision Captain Haddock as a long-term partner for Tintin? He had written various co-stars in the past that could foreseeably have joined the family, but they all had been limited to a single adventure. Think the absent-minded Dr. Sarcophagus in Cigars of the Pharaoh, or the Ernest Chang from The Blue Lotus. There was Snowy, of course, but he was forever restricted to speaking only to the reader, and his dialogue was slowly reduced until it disappeared completely in claws. Perhaps symbolic of how his Sancho Panza role, in the words of Urge, had been given to the newly created Haddock. Creatively, it makes sense. There are only so many different bone-related gags one can draw, and Haddock offered an itinerary of emotions, all of which are displayed in claws, allowing for a greater range of expression than could be conveyed by either Snowy or, for that matter, Tintin himself. Now, by this stage in the series, the Thompsons were recurring characters, but as detectives, it was plausible for them to appear on the scene of any unwinding mystery. The setting of the next story in the series was directly conceived as a means to include the captain, before Urge decided to save himself the trouble and simply move him and Tintin in together. Regardless of whether or not Urge planned for a future member of the Tintin family, he quickly realised he had one. On a personal level as well, we can perhaps understand why Urge might have a fondness for his latest creation. Urge had created Tintin when he was just 22, only a few years removed from the world of the Boy Scouts that so inspired him. By the time The Crab with the Golden Claws finished serialization, he was 34. 
He was married. He had bills to pay, letters to send, meetings to organise, merchandise to consider, publicity to arrange, while Tintin remained young, righteous, uncomplicated. Tintin, the creative manifestation of Urge's eternal desire to be a hero, was becoming less of an ideal and more of a fantasy, and many Tintinologists have argued that, particularly in the difficulty of the immediate post-war years, the father of Tintin would come to see himself more in the gruff and melancholic Captain Haddock. In essence, The Crab with the Golden Claws is an average story with a wonderful character. It's difficult to believe that Captain Haddock, such an endearing part of the series, had taken nine stories to make his first appearance, debuting after Rostopopoulos, The Thompsons, Dr. Mueller, and even future foil, Senora Castafiore. He was, all would agree, well worth the wait. Hergé had originally wanted to entitle the story The Red Crab. This would have followed similar naming conventions of his earlier Blue Lotus and Black Island. But he had provisionally used The Crab with the Golden Claws, and it was published thus in album format in 1941, before receiving a colorized edition in 1943, without any other significant changes to the art. Hergé forever critical that publishing house castermen were not doing his work justice, was incensed that, once again, the colour proofs had been sent to the printers without his final approval. If I simply dashed off my drawings, it wouldn't matter, but I promise you that I execute the drawings that appear every week, as well as the plates and covers, with the utmost care. Does it surprise you, then, that I am sad and enraged when I see the results of my work? Regardless, wartime paper shortages finally convinced Hergé that it was no longer feasible to publish an album of his stories in separate black and white and colour editions. And as such, Claws was the final adventure to be published in a black and white album. Henceforth, they would go straight from black and white serialisation to the 62-page colour format, which is still the standard for Tintin Adventures today. Actually, the frequent chopping and changing of the story's structure in Le Soir meant that Casterman found themselves with only 58 pages, and resorted to inserting the four full-page pictures Hergé had drawn for the black and white album, which were typically omitted from the colour albums. Just in case you were wondering why Claws is the only colour album to feature these. More changes were to come, however, when the Nazis deemed that the depiction of race mixing in the smuggling gang was immoral and offensive. Oh, sorry, that wasn't the Nazis. That was the American publishers in the 1960s, who requested that two members of Allen's gang be changed from black to white, as well as removing scenes in which Haddock directly drank whiskey out of the bottle. As Hergé would reflect later, quote, Everyone knows that Americans never drink whiskey, and that there are no blacks in America, end quote. I'm pretty sure he was being sarcastic at that time. However, the text was not changed accordingly, so even in modern editions, when Haddock is chasing the gang member that attacked him, he still demands that the police, quote, arrest that negro. So... Good? The Crab with the Golden Claws, spurred on by the enormous readership of Le Soir, was a commercial success. While Urge's stories and art had improved tremendously since he first created Tintin a dozen years ago, this had not been mirrored by an increase in sales of the albums, until now, and Claw's sales topped 100,000 for the first time since Tintin's first adventure in Land of the Soviets. Such was the demand that Le Soir had to stop printing advertisements. Casterman had run out of albums and there was not enough paper to print more. 
Perhaps it was the success of the story that led to it having the distinction of being the first Tintin adventure adapted to screen. In the 1947 stop-motion film of the same name, which follows the story almost exactly. It's competently made, if a little creepy by today's standards, but it would not prove to be a forerunner of similar adaptions. The film was aired only twice theatrically, before one of the producers declared bankruptcy and fled for Argentina, as you do. Tintin's big screen adventures would have to wait a while, though this early attempt can still be viewed online. Claws would later be adapted for animated television in both the Bellvision series of the 1950s and the Ellipse Nelvana series of the early 1990s. Both of these adaptions toned down some of the more problematic elements of the story. For example, in the 1950s Bellvision, Captain Haddock is subdued not by being kept drunk, but by sleeping tablets being put in his coffee. Similarly, the Karabujan is not smuggling opium, but smuggling diamonds. The 1990s Ellipse Nelvana version does keep the opium, and Haddock is initially drunk, but he never relapses throughout the course of the story. Finally, the story would serve as one of the three amalgamated into the 2011 Spielberg-directed The Adventures of Tintin film, along with later books The Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure. The film depicts Tintin's meeting with Captain Haddock and their subsequent escape from the Caribou but the drug smuggling plot is absent. Reading through The Crab with the Golden Claws, I was initially quite underwhelmed, especially having come off reading The Black Island and King Otakar's Scepter, which are two of my favourite Tintin stories. But in hindsight, that's because I was looking only at story itself, and I was taking for granted the inclusion of Captain Haddock, who of course I'm very familiar with as a character. And I think if it was a Tintin solo story, it would be very forgettable, but I don't think it was ever designed to be one of those. I think Urge made a conscious effort to focus on the Captain and his interactions with Tintin, and so when you read it in this light, it's a very, very entertaining story. Captain Haddock is an integral part of the series as a whole, but it's easy to forget that it's based on the strength of his appearance in Crab with the Golden Claws. So, The Crab with the Golden Claws can be considered something of a transitory album. It was the first story to feature Captain Haddock, the first story to appear outside of Le Petit Vintiem, and the last album to be published in black and white. So, for these reasons, I consider it to be the start of Urge's golden era of Tintin adventures, and the ideal place to end this season of Radio Tintin. Uh, don't worry, I still have some bonus episodes planned in the meantime and i will of course be active on social media please follow me on instagram at tintin.podcast or on facebook at facebook.com slash radio tintin podcast if you have the app please consider checking me five golden stars on apple podcasts and if you want to go the extra mile you can support me financially at patreon.com slash radio tintin podcast if i don't make anything you don't pay anything with that in mind thank you to mfanan whose support made this possible and thank you to everyone Everyone, everyone who listens, likes, and shares. It's been an absolute pleasure to connect with Tintin fans, and uh, I appreciate the experience. And so we leave Tintin having learned to work with his new friend, and Urge having learned to work at his new publication. Had Urge been in that lifeboat instead of Tintin, the captain may have predicted smooth sailing, but with some very dark clouds looming in the distance. All this and more on the next season of Radio Tintin. In the meantime, Tintin heads, this has been Radio Tintin. Thank you for tuning in. 